This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. It seems that I don't know who woke her up, but somebody finally said to Kathleen Wynn, and she heard the message that uh, we're all suffering from energy poverty, and that her activist ways. And, and you know what? We all want we all want a great place to raise our kids. We all want a green environment. We all want sustainable energy. We all want that. But you're killing us. You're killing us with your activism. You're killing us by by draining our wallets for these projects, which I'm not sure are really all that thought out. Not from an environmental standpoint, but from a fiscal standpoint. And now all of a sudden, and it could have a lot to do with the by-election law, a loss that was uh, just recent, and, and all of a sudden now, well, we've got to look at what we can do. What we can do, it's as if you just realize there's a problem here. What have you been doing for the last several months, years? Well, we've been all screaming about this. And what I want to know is, what are you going to do now? And of course, they aren't asking or answering those questions right now. And on the way to proroguing government, from what I understand, let's bring in PC Energy critic in Ontario, John Yakabuski, and he is with us now. Hello, Hello, John. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How about you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So why is all this happening now, John? I mean, we've been screaming about this for for years. What's turned the the tide here? You on your show and us in the legislature for years now, we have been absolutely going apoplectic at times uh, over the cost of energy and what it is doing, putting people into energy poverty. We've been bringing up these statistics. The Auditor General has talked about how much money has been wasted. You know, you talked about everybody wants to see us greener, cleaner, all of those things. We uh, Closing the coal, we could have accomplished all of those things without inflicting the kind of pain uh, that the McGinty and Wynn liberals chose to do so by signing all of these ridiculously exorbitant long-term contracts which have added, added expen- uh, ex- extensively to the cost of, of electricity in this province. So now... All of a sudden, because the Liberals only act in self-interest, and that is, you know, I, there's, there's no, absolutely, absolutely no question about that, Scott. They, have, they act in self-interest. So now, all of a sudden, now Kathleen Wynne is saying, oh, yes, we've heard people are upset about energy prices. <laughs> Come on. I mean, God, it's been news for at least six or seven years that it's, it's reaching a crisis proportion. And now, all of a sudden, because they lost a by-election in Scarborough. That's the whole, this is the way they work. Now, all of a sudden, their eyes have been opened, and they're going to do something about it. What they're going to do, nobody knows. They're not offering any details, and then they cloud it out a little bit more today by, you know, news conference yesterday about energy, announcement today that they're going to prorogue the legislature. We're going to come back on Monday as per schedule, but it's all about a new you know, new plan for the liberals. It's all about everything is calculated on their on the on the part of these folks, and and the the prorogation is no exception. Talk, talk about that a little bit. How much is that in? Why prorogue now? What what what's the purpose of that? Does this issue on hydro? Does this issue of the by election? How much do they play into this decision? Well, as they say, they're acting in their their own self interest because they want to change the channel. You know, they're going to start a new session now, not a, a new parliament, but a new, the second session of the, the 41st parliament. This will be a new, new, a new session of the parliament starting on Monday, and a throne speech will be uh, delivered by the lieutenant governor on Monday, and they're going to tell Ontarians just how wonderful it's going to be over the next two years as they plan for the 2018 election. And just forget about everything that happened in the last several years. Just don't worry about it. That's... That's old news now, and, and we, the Wynn government, is going to make sure everything is perfect. But, of course, there'll be very few. It'll be scant on details and long on, on you, know, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, fluffy promises on Monday. But this is what they want to do, change the channel, get some big press uh, front-page news on uh, throne speech and all of that kind of stuff, and, and hope that the people are going to forget. But I can tell you, Scott, the people who are being cut off in hydro, every more every year, 60-some thousand last year, had their uh, electricity cut off, they're not going to forget, and their relatives and their friends and their co-workers and the other ones that are in the same boat, they're not going to forget. How can uh, electricity rates not be front and center in all of this? Well, they should have e- even 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 if you pro- even if you prorogue the government. Uh, at the end of the day, John, this is still going to be an issue. 
No question about it. No question about it. We're going to make sure it's an issue. Uh, as the opposition, we're not. When I say they're not going to forget about it, we're not going to. Meaning the, the people, we're not going to forget about it either, Scott. I mean, this will be a uh, number one priority. One of our number one priorities in this new session is making sure that they're not let off the hook uh, by you know hoping making some airy promises about what they're going to do about electricity rates. They're the ones who have put them where they are with their absolutely wrong-headed decisions, and they defend them all by saying, "Oh, we needed to do this and we needed to do that." All of that could have been accomplished, Scott, all of it, without uh, sending electricity rates skyrocketing through the roof like they've done. So are you expecting after the prorogation that, that we're going to see a new plan with new lower hydro rates? I doubt that we're going to see that from them, but there'll be some kind of uh, way of confusing the public. There'll be uh, a Peter and a Paul sort of principle where yeah. they'll be robbing Peter to pay Paul, and they'll be trying to make it look good and they'll be trying to tell everybody just how wonderful it's going to be for them. But one way or another, people are going to continue to pay for the, mis- for the self-interested uh, mistakes of this government. And you've got to remember, all of these people that have signed, they've signed massive contracts with Scott. They're all huge donators to the Liberal Party. What, you know, obviously they haven't told us what they're going to do and, and, and uh, you know, why they're waking up and now why we're all of a sudden going to get some sort of relief, whatever that is. Uh, how many options do they have? What sort of relief can they give us other than, as you mentioned, you know, taking money from the middle class to help those that are less fortunate that are at the, at the very low end of the, of the energy poverty scale? You know, that's, that remains to be seen because I, I can't pretend that I understand how they think, because they've got us into a mess that I could have never uh, managed to do it even in my worst days. But here, so how they're going to approach this, I, as I say, I think it's going to be a very confusing uh, litany of, of give and take and, and all kinds of things that they're going to try to make it look, uh, you know, put a shiny uh, coat on a, on, a, on a rusty car, you know, that's what they're going to do. Shiny, shiny coat of uh, wax on a rusty car is what they're going to try to do. Uh, but from where you guys sit on the other side, can you see an out? If it was your game to play, how would you get us out of this? How would you change this? How can you turn this thing around? We're going to turn this around. I, you, mark my words on that, uh, Scott. We are uh, honored with uh, being chosen government. And we're right now, it's a very exciting time. We're right now in the process of our policy development, uh, um, in the middle of our policy development process where we're asking members of the party and indeed all people all across Ontario what, you know, what their feelings are. And we're going to have an energy policy, I can guarantee you, that when we go to the polls in 2018, that is going to be demonstrably better and fairer and, 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 and uh, addresses the energy poverty issue uh, that this government has failed to address. Uh, are you worried or how concerned are you that whatever sort of option they give us is just something that will increase the debt and pass that on to future generations? If whatever, I, I do know this, whatever they do, Scott, it will be calculated to be in their political self-interest. And I caution the people to make sure they read between the lines and check the fine print because they're going to try to put a very pretty coat on something that is likely not good for Ontario. How did this become such a big uh, issue in a in the Scarborough by-election? Because obviously, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they lost that by-election, and this certainly was, uh, you know, front and center as far as uh, issues in that riding. Are you surprised that this did become such a, a big issue in that riding? N- not at all. We knew going into it was going to be an issue, and we certainly. Uh, our people on the ground and our people in the in the uh, Raymond Show. And congratulations to Raymond Show, great candidate, uh, long-term counselor there. Uh, Raymond Show's people knew they've been on the ground for months, and Raymond's have been a counselor for years. He understood and knew what the people were talking in Scarborough. But it's not surprising we heard the same things in the Whitney uh, Oshawa Whitby Whitby Oshawa by-election. We heard it in Simcoe North. The difference for the Liberals is those were writings we held. This is one now that they held. In fact, nobody else has ever held the writing since it was created but the Liberals. And now, all of a sudden now, they're actually taking note that people are complaining about electricity prices. Uh, do you think at this point this will stick? Do you think, especially as, as you head into a, a prorogation period, that this will be something that is going to be front and center heading into the next election? Will this be the big issue? It will be a big issue. It, we think it could be the biggest issue. It'll certainly be a big issue. 
I mean, there's a long time before there's, you know, 18 or so months, maybe 20 months or whatever before the next election. It will be a big issue in the election, no question about it. But uh, keep a close eye on, on Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals because they're going to try to do everything they can uh, to fool the, uh, the people of Ontario. John Yakabuski has been with us, PC Energy Critic in Ontario. John, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And, of course, uh, reached out to the Liberals and uh, unable to get anybody to speak on this at this time. Certainly, this is an extremely contentious issue. Uh, off Facebook today, uh, examine, quote, ways to help people bear the costs in their day-to-day lives, end quote. That's a joke. This means all she will look at is ways to raise the rates higher when they, than they already are. Uh, take our firstborn children, our last, and charge them high rates, too then see how they can work it into our schedule and finances so they can still get their money, uh, says Rebecca. Mark says, what will she do? Uh, Which, of course, was the question on the Facebook page today. Uh, Wynn wakes up on hydro rates, but what will she do? Uh, Mark says, uh, what the provincial liberals always do, form a bogus committee or pay cronies thousands in consulting about what to do and claim there is a process and then hope it all blows over till the Tories nominate another far-right idiot that alienate and alienates voters instead of a moderate and the NDP gets drawn off message uh, and out of their correct left position and falls to make, uh, fails to make proper gains. Uh, Jack writes, she probably thinks they are too low. Uh, feel free to make your points known. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Um, I don't know. I, m- maybe this is the beginning of the end. Maybe it's not. But it has certainly been the first time that when people have screamed and yelled at this prime minister, and again, she paints us that if we don't buy into her plan, that we're all fossil fuel burning pigs. And it's like, this is why the Green Party doesn't have have any ground any stake because all parties have turned green everyone's turned green we're all green now we all want to save the planet we just don't want to go broke doing it because we've got an activist leader who's trying very hard to push the left party the ndp right off the face of the earth so it amazes me to no end after years of this and we've all seen it coming. We know there's other, inter- there's other uh, uh, electricity rate increases coming in the very, very near future, within the year. It's, there's more on the way. We know that. They've been very, very blunt about it. And yet when people say, wait a sec, is this what we need? The PCs are claiming right now, we could have done all of this without this mess. And we've had lots of experts on that say the exact same thing. Green energy, this is not about the environment. This party has been using green energy to generate revenue for themselves for for the last several years. This isn't about hydro. This isn't about renewables. This is finding a way to generate revenue for a cash-strapped government. Just the same way the HOV lanes, you're now going to be able to pay to get onto those with one person in the car because they're generating revenue from you. When are we going to wake up and smell the coffee here? It's unbelievable how people keep falling for this crap. And if you question it, you're some sort of fossil fuel burning Neanderthal. There are ways to do this that are fiscally responsible and will create jobs. Not put people out of work because no business can afford their electricity bill. And now she's standing up in front of everybody and saying, oh, because we've lost a by-election in a riding we've held since it was created in the 90s, maybe uh, we should turn the ship around. No, maybe we should make it look like we're doing something is really the the correct answer here. So it's taken them to lose a by-election in a riding that they've held for years to the PCs. And the number one issue wasn't sex ed, The number one issue was your damn hydro bill. And this woman just seems to turn a blind eye to it all. Well, we all starve to death. Yes, we want to save the planet for our kids. But we also want our kids to have a job, be able to survive, live, put a roof over their head. It's time to get rid of the activist government and put somebody who's socially and fiscally responsible in. Whoever the hell that is, I'm not sure. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've heard that CHCH News, uh, and this is great news, will uh, resume its weekend newscasts uh, coming up on Saturdays and Sundays at 6 and 11 o'clock, a half-hour newscast. And, of course, you might remember it wasn't that long ago where uh, they basically shut the puppy down and sent uh, Matt Hayes and Donna Skelly and Ken Welch and a whole pile of other great people out the door. And uh, basically the, the big union went with it, and then they took some of those people back, uh, none that I mentioned, but they, they took some of the employees back and then relaunched it w- without the union. I'm still not sure how you can do all that. I'm hoping Marvin Ryder can help us uh, explain it. A business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He's back to class. He's with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Scott. What's it like to be back in class for you? Uh, it's always enjoyable to have the students. There's a wonderful energy on campus when the students return to class. Uh, sometimes, of course, the energy gets put in the wrong direction, but nonetheless, it's a lot of fun to be around. It's funny. I've had the pleasure of going there and doing a couple of events at Mac, and you really notice that as soon as you walk on campus. It's just a completely different vibe, isn't it? It is. Uh, now, one of my problems is I keep getting older, but the students stay the same age. And so <laughs> uh, as I get older, my energy levels tend to wane a little bit. When you come back, it's like getting uh, plugged into the electrical grid, so to speak, and I get a recharge out of the students, and I don't have to pay for that. Oh, that's great. All right. Uh, well, before we get to the CHCH scenario, uh, obviously uh, Premier Wynne going to prorogue government, and prior to that, talking about uh, how she finally has recognized uh, the energy situation and the energy poverty that's been created in Ontario. Uh, what 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 can they do? What what options would they have from a business perspective? Well, and and at this point, I'm not just quite clear what she has in mind. So let me start with your hydro bill itself, your electricity bill itself. Uh, you have to go back to the uh, Mike Harris years. We used to sort of get one bill, everything all in. And then Mr. Harris decided that what we should really do is see the components. So there is a cost for the electricity that you use. There's a cost to distribute that electricity from central power generating sites to your local area. And then there's your local distribution charge. So there's now three charges. The Ontario government and uh, and the sort of Hydro One are responsible for two of those charges the cost of generating electricity, and the cost to get it to your local area. It's your local area that's responsible for the local distribution cost. Um, So when you have a high bill, what you first have to do is look at the components and say, what component is killing me? Where is the cost? Now, when we talk about Ontario rates, we typically only focus on the power generation rates. One of the dangers of doing that in comparing jurisdictions is that, well, what was their distribution charge? Maybe their generation rate is lower. In a smaller province, you don't have as big a grid. You don't have the same cost, but maybe the the distribution uh, uh, costs are higher in one area and lower in another. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is the easiest thing she could do is simply say, we're going to roll back the rate for basic electricity generation from, I think it's 24 cents, during the peak season, or excuse me, 18 cents a kilowatt hour in the peak season to off-peak hours, which is 8.7. Let's take that down a couple of cents across the board. The next thing she could look at would be with Hydro One, their distribution charge, and is that high? Is that distribution grid that they're privatizing? Now, that sale earlier this year of some of Hydro One's distribution grid hasn't resulted in any uh, increased charge at this point. Um, it's just shift where the profits go rather than all going to the province. They now go to private sector people. The third thing you could do is look at the local distribution companies. Now the problem is each local distribution company has its own rates that they have to justify. It would be much harder to make a change. So ultimately what I think she's going to do is deal with the power generation cost. That's the easiest one for her to have an impact on and take it back. Either reinstate some sort of a green energy rebate um, because some of those costs may be because of green energy, or just cut them across the board. That would be the easiest way for it to deal with it. Where does that leave the province? Well, the, again, the whole theory behind all of this was that the electrical thing is supposed to be self, uh, uh, self-sufficient. self In other words, that they generate enough revenue to cover their costs. Uh, they're not really supposed to be overly profitable. They're just supposed to cover their costs. Um, as you pointed out, uh, one thing that's happened over the last four or five years is we've become very good at conserving energy. Now, while we consume less units of energy, uh, kilowatts, uh, the distribution grid still costs the same amount to maintain. And so, you know, then you have to shift the charges. What you save on one side, well, we've got to recoup in another way. Same thing here in Hamilton around water usage. With U.S. steel going down, it wasn't consuming as much water. 
suddenly, how do you support the infrastructure? So your rate, residential rate, had to go up right. to cover the decline in the industrial usage of water. So that's the, there is a little concern in here. That, so that's the distribution side of it. But on the basic generation side, she could make that change. And as long as the energy company could, could uh, survive, now maybe you'd have to slow up some of the green energy projects or renegotiate them. You know, people were signing up to sell to the grid uh, energy generated solar or wind at something like 90 cents a kilowatt hour. Well, if I'm only charging you 18, how long can you afford to do that? So maybe you need to renegotiate some of those. I'll have to see where her, where her interest lies. Uh, whatever the attention was way back when for splitting all of this up, it now seems to be used as a shell game. I mean, it seems one is used to blame the other and just confuse Ontarians. Well, in, in some ways, I feel the same way about the GST. We used to have a federal sales tax that was embedded in prices. If you visit Europe and you go and you find an item in a store you like, you take it to the checkout counter and you pay that price. It's the most marvelous thing in the world. It's mm. 30 euros, and I pay 30 euros. In Canada, I find something that's $30, and suddenly I'm paying 36.75 with the additional taxes. And the reason why we, we did this with the GST, we wanted to make it visible. We wanted you to see the tax you were paying. On one hand, that's nice, but on the other hand, uh, you know, there's an inconvenience factor. And I think the same thing goes on here. They wanted you to see the different components so you could under, better understand what led to your overall bill. But rather than bringing clarity, I think it brings more confusion. And honestly, when people complain, they only look at the bottom line. They don't look at the components. I've not heard anyone, for instance, say, well, that distribution charge is out of line. They just look at the bottom line saying, I'm paying too much. Uh, yeah, it's not the truth. Um, so do you anticipate, and again, we don't have a crystal ball here, and, and they certainly haven't revealed what they're going to do at this point. Can you see them uh, and having the ability to actually bring the rates down or in somehow uh, cool this off a bit? Well, so here's the interesting question. Is she serious? If she's not serious, the best thing to do would be to have a, a royal inquiry. We'll, we'll have a listening tour of the province. We'll do this over the next eight months. People will come to your area. You can bring your bills and complain, and then we'll summarize, and we'll issue a report next year, and then God knows it will be after the next election before it gets implemented. If, if she's serious, she doesn't need to do that. She can act immediately and do some things, again, I think with the basic cost of, of energy, uh, bring it down a couple of cents a kilowatt hour. But again, here's the problem, Scott. Even if she did that, even if she took the peak rate from 18 cents to, let's say, 15 cents, I don't know how big of an impact it's going to have, uh, have on your overall bill. Hmm. Uh, saving $50 a bill or $100 a bill, it doesn't seem that much. Now, over the year, you may save five, $600, but because it's one bill after another and the increment seems small, whether that's a big deal. Same thing happened with the GST when they went from 7 to 6 and 6 to 5. In theory, they gave up billions of dollars in revenue. But if you ask the average person, they don't feel they gained anything. It's, it's because of the small changes on your individual bills add up to big changes when you put them all together. All right, let's change topics and move to CHCH. Good news for them. They're going to start implementing uh, weekend newscasts. I go back to the question, and I'm sure you heard the preamble. How how is the company able to do this? I mean, this was a union shop. It had employees. It's employee- still a union shop. It, 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 is it still considered that? In a sense. So these, these workers, that union is not the union of record for the new shop. But So let me try to explain to you this way. We have various laws in our country that say you shouldn't do things. Like, for instance, you should not murder somebody. But they do not act proactively. They don't stop you from murdering anybody. It's just that if you do it, then we go and we take you to court, and ultimately you pay the price by going behind bars. In this situation, we have some rules. One of them was to say that if you have a successor corporation, company A gets sold to company B, uh, you've got to keep your union. Instead, uh, Channel Zero came along and said, uh, no, we're getting rid of the unionized jobs. Now the new company is non-union. We don't have any of that. So there is a grievance process in place. Should they have done it? I'm going to tell you no. I think they're going to lose it, but you've got to take them to the hearing. You've got to put your case out. That's still ongoing at this point. It really, in fact, it hasn't even really begun, and it'll probably take another six months to a year to sort that part out. So for the moment, it appears like Channel Zero got away with something. I don't think they will in the fullness of time. Eventually, I think the rules will say what you did was wrong. But for the time being, yes, I know it seems like they got away with it. Uh, that being said, obviously, uh, you know, uh, they're in a fragile situation right now. And, and TV stations like this are having issues right the way across the country. Uh, Hamiltonians, everybody knows what this station means to them. Does that weigh in their favor in any way? Can they get away with more 
because of that. And, and you know, either we sink or swim. You guys can decide which way we go. So the, the biggest problem with Channel Zero, I'm going to say in talking to you, is that it's a private company, and they are not required to disclose all kinds of financial information. So I have a one-sided story. For instance, last December when Channel Zero took those uh, initiatives to, to downsize the workforce and basically terminate one group and rehire them in another group, they claimed they were losing $130,000 a week. Well, you add that up over the course of a year, that's, that's almost a $6 million annual loss. I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know what caused that. We know at one point they were getting um, additional funding from the CRTC, what they called a local uh, programming fund. Uh, that was decided to, to eliminate that in 2014. Was this just a simple, we lost that $5 million, and therefore that's what's caused the $5 million loss? I don't know. I also know that the CRTC, listening to these kinds of concerns, is starting a local news fund, a local news fund, but that won't come into effect until 2017. Um, so I, I actually can't tell you how strong or weak the financial position of the company is. One would believe if you downsize your payroll, that's going to help you on the cost side. But it's not clear to me what's happened on the revenue side. Have they gained more advertisers or, or have they charged more for the advertising? So to be candid, when people ask me about CH, I say I think this is still a company with some significant challenges going forward. Uh, honestly, I could wake up tomorrow and they could announce they were closing and that really wouldn't shock me. A company that was that sick last December can't be that much better now eight months later. Uh, what about past employees? What about them? What recourse do they have? You said that this is still could take a year to sort all out. Where does that leave them? Right. So uh, there's two different issues here. One is on the termination of the employees and then rehiring them in a non-union environment and canceling seniority, what have you. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're going to lose that. But if a company does go bankrupt, and this is the original company that hired people, although they should pay severance to people, if you're bankrupt, you don't have any money to pay severance. In a way, this is like the U.S. Steel situation. If U.S. Steel goes under and doesn't exist in Hamilton anymore, those post-retirement benefits everybody wants, they're not going to be there. There is no obligation to pay them. That's quite different than a pension plan where money gets set aside, but for post-retirement benefits, there aren't any. So I'm not sure there will be any severances for those people who, who did not get hired back. But in terms of the hiring process, people might suddenly be, uh, get offered a job because they didn't follow the right rules. They should have followed a rule of seniority when you hire people back under those things. But we'll have to see what the, what the adjudicator is going to say in these issues. First, they've got to declare it wrong, and then they've got to determine what parts of it were wrong and then what the right remediation is. This could take take a long time. So here's what's happened. I think those people who lost their jobs have found their own way going forward. Somebody like a Ken Welch said, well, I think I'm going to retire. I've had a long career. Uh, others, like Donna Skelly, said, well, I'm going to start a new career and, of course, got elected to Hamilton City Council. Other longstanding employees, even those who got hired back, some have left in the last eight months because they say, I'm not sure what the long-term future is. So joining CTV uh, News Network or CFTO in Toronto or Global or CP24 or CBC, I think my future is stronger there, and I actually do not blame those people. It, it, given what happened, your loyalty to CH has to have changed, and really, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own seniority. Could this set a precedence, whatever decision is made? Well, I, President, I, I'm going to say no in the sense that I think the precedent's already there, and I think they violated it, so I think it's going to reaffirm precedents that are already out there. What it would do, though, is for any other uh, organization that had media operations like this and said, hey, you know, that was pretty clever, declaring the one thing bankruptcy and then hiring them back in a non-union environment, I think I'd like to try that. Yeah. Assuming this is upheld, uh, they're going to be told that that's just a non-starter. That's a silly thing to even be thinking about. Uh, so y you talked about a non-union environment. Are they still unionized or not? Are they paying dues? No. So, so where Unifor is involved is, is really on behalf of the previous local that was there. Right. Uh, they're not paying dues at the moment, but Unifor says that's, that's wrong. They should have been paying dues. There should have been a unionized environment, and that's the case they're going to take to the adjudicator. The good news for them is Unifor is big enough that it has um, money invested to cover these kinds of things, just like they have a strike fund when strikes happen. Uh, they've got some things to do this, and, and I, Unifor is not going to give up on this. The other reason is that Unifor itself is a relatively new union. It's only three years old. 
was formed August 31st in 2013. And there's a lot of people who were members of the precursor unions, like the Canadian Auto Workers, who are saying, oh, I don't know if this new union really has my best interest at heart. So right now, in its early days, it's got to be seen as fighting for all the workers, no matter where you've come from. Hmm. So moving forward with this, how do you see this working out? What's the solution here? Well, uh, I mean, for the first thing, of course, if you are a business and you're looking to advertise, honestly, the best thing you could do is support your local station, uh, buy advertising time on there. I think they were, this is a really good move. The one complaint I heard from everybody, yes, they missed their noon news broadcast. They used to have an hour at 11 o'clock. There used to be a special sports show. But the one thing that resonated with everybody was the weekend news. How do I know what the weather's going to be like on Sunday? I was going to tune in Saturday or you know, um, remember that, that fellow in Burlington who went missing, that runner who went yeah, missing? Yeah, yeah. What's happened with him? I have to wait till Monday. Well, they don't wait till Monday. They turn to other news sources. So putting back something on the weekend makes great sense to me. It says here they're going to have nine part-time jobs created as a result of it. That's nine opportunities. I don't think you're going to see, again, old faces return. But that's, you know, anytime even with part-time work, there will be some people who will be able to get jobs out of this as we go. Uh, so I want to see that happen. I'll also tell you this. If, if the worst happens, if Channel Zero does drop the ball on this or can't afford to keep it going, it is my belief this community could see uh, an ownership materialize internally. In other words, I think there are community leaders who would be prepared to put some money in. In fact, this whole community might be prepared to buy shares hmm. in a, something, a new CHCH, because this is so important to people in Hamilton. Uh, it may have to go through a rough spot. It may have to go through some uncertain ownership. But if Channel Zero, who does not have deep pockets, they bought the station for all of, I think, $5,000 uh, six years ago mm-hmm. and assumed some debt, uh, they don't have the deep pockets. I, I think you might see another form of, of ownership materialize. But what I'd really like to do is see the existing one get stable. I'd like to see us go back to where we were before, and that means you know steady uh, re- revenues of advertising and, and employment. Can it survive, do you think, in this current environment? Well, that's, that's the other question. So the, in its previous iteration, it, it had a lot of news. Uh, I can't quite give you the exact quote, but it was something like 44 hours of news a week, and then it began by showing you some movies at night, and then it got into some syndicated programming. It really is the cost-benefit. What, what can you show people, and what uh, advertising revenue do you generate Channel Zero shows some very, very old movies. If you yeah. uh, were an insomniac and tuned at 2 in the morning, you would have seen some wonderful classic films from the 30s and 40s. I can't believe more than 1,000 people were probably watching, and I can't believe you were getting much advertising revenue at that time. So can a station survive, an independent station survive? Yes, but it requires really clever programming, really looking and taking a hard look at the cost of the program and the market, and what advertisers are prepared to, to spend. Uh, CH for years did that. Uh, if I can go back to the, what we call the Frank Denardis years when he was a general manager, he was very good at finding that. Uh, it requires that kind of level. And I think the, my, my challenge is I'm not sure Channel Zero has that capability, but I'm not sure that capability isn't out there. If, again, they were to look for it, you might find someone else who can really make magic happen. As you mentioned, it obviously appears the public support is there. How, how big an asset is that? Well, it's huge. It's huge. Uh, uh, obviously, if the viewers had tuned out, if the number of eyeballs watching the news programs had declined dramatically and instead they had switched to CFTO or Global or CBC or whatever, then you'd be in a much worse situation because now with no eyeballs, how do you generate any advertising revenue? It, it, one of the interesting things about CH, and I, I was never paid by CH. I was never an employee. I need to put that out front. But I appeared there fairly regularly, and you realized how much uh, local people viewed it as a family. Mm-hmm. That they viewed the various announcers and, and casters on this thing, journalists, as part of the family, uh, and that you don't necessarily get in a bigger city. So that support, even though you know, uh, going back, we had Dan McLean and uh, others who have left. Even those who have survived, there is still great affinity for them. Uh, and as long as that stays, then you've got a core that you can build on. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. Enjoy your first few weeks at school. I will. I'll turn off the lights now and keep the clock <laughs> down. <laughs> All right. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, National Post has an article that talks uh, about training Ontario bartenders, hotel and hospitality staff to intervene in cases of sexual harassment. When, when a server sees a patron slip something into a drink, a date's drink, what do they do? 
The Ontario government is hoping a new spate of training of training for services, uh, servers, bartenders, and hotel staff, and those in the industry will help this and have said to will split $1.7 million in funding to tackle sexual violence and harassment. That'll be uh, divvied up with the Ontario Restaurant and Hotel Motel Association. They say, we tried to get them on, but they couldn't uh, respond to us today, but did say that uh, they did not receive that much. It wasn't that much and are going to offer some sort of protocol and uh, see if they can get some sort of common ground on all of this. To talk more about it, Lenore uh, Lukasik-Foss is with us, director of SASHA, that is the Sexual Assault Centre of Hamilton and Area, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Lenore. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We really enjoy it when you're here and offer us your expertise. Uh, Your thoughts. Do uh, bartenders and and service providers in Ontario, uh, do they need more training in this sort of thing? Absolutely, they need more training. And we, we are hearing it from some of the folks themselves who do this work who are saying they might see something and they don't quite know how to react or respond or what's safe or appropriate. So, yes, we need uh, protocols, we need training. My only sort of uh, uh, disappointment, well, I have many, but one is that it's not mandatory. So what my understanding is of this program is that it won't be necessarily tr- uh, a mandatory, but an optional thing. And it would be, I think, preferable if it was like everyone in the industry has to kind of do this, similar to what would happen in a smart serve that it would be better if it was integrated into something like that. Well, you know, you bring up a, a, a valid point. I mean, we certainly do it with things like smart serve. In other words, recognizing when people are impaired or not. So why yeah. would this be any different? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. I, I think the a minister who kind of announced this funding had mentioned that, that changing smart serve requires a change in legislation or something kind of complicated like that. But I'm, I'm like, well, let's do that then because... Yeah. Really, that's where we're going to get the traction is that everyone who is, you know, if you want to serve alcohol, you have to go to, you have to do smart serve. And then if you're going to do smart serve, you're going to learn about what, you know, how you have rights that if you're being sexually harassed, because that's a big issue around people serving alcohol is the experience of sexual harassment or being told that you have to wear a certain kind of um, clothing if you're a woman and you want to work in, a, in an establishment. And also, what do you do if you see stuff? Because we know alcohol is the number one rape drug. It is the number one rape drug uh, in our community. So we want folks who are, are dealing with alcohol, serving it in these public spaces, to be able to respond. Why don't you think it is mandatory? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, that's a question I would like to ask. I, I, maybe there's, well, who's there's la- no... How how would you get into doing this, and and who would cover the cost? I mean, how if 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 people don't do it uh, or aren't made to do it, then where's the incentive to even do it? Yeah, I think those are really excellent questions. And and for me, I I don't want to be too much of the downer about you know these these important uh, training initiatives. I mean, that's it's really great. But as often, the devil's in the details. And so for me, it's, you know, what will be the incentives for people to complete the training? Uh, it, it, I, my understanding is it will be online, so it will be accessible. So my um, hope is that they will be working with experts um, who know this issue inside and out to develop the training. And then, you know, is there some something that really, like, will, will organizations, will hotels, bars, give their staff, hey, you know, this is, uh, go. you have a half hour, go, please take this training right now. They can yeah. pay them to do it. So it's not like, you know, you're expected on your free time, because then no one's going to do it. And is it free to the person who wants to do it? Yes, we understand. Okay. Again, my, my understanding is that it will be developed and available, easily accessible online to these industries, and then uh, the idea being that you just kind of log in or whatever and right. do it. So I, I would really be encouraging um, you know, owners of bars and restaurants and hotels to really be building that time in for their staff as part of their, just a regular part of their training. Yeah, makes sense. What's, you, you, you were saying earlier that you'd heard stories when I asked how big this problem is. What are you hearing? Well, we, we certainly are hearing from uh, survivors and, and some folks who work in this industry that, uh, you know, we know the existence of, for example, rape drugs other than alcohol exist out there that people have uh, been to a location and then uh, have a, a drink and then they are having a reaction way beyond that. So there's some real concern that, they, that the drink has been tampered with. Right. We are hearing... Uh, people, stories from people saying they watched a, 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 a guy that just kind of, you know, keeping buying drinks, buying drinks, and, and you know, with a really, um, you know, intoxicated 
woman and being concerned, like, what do you do? How do you respond? Mm. Like, so we, these are things that we hear about in the community um, in lots of different locations and that people aren't always sure, like, what do they do? And then, you know, obviously, you know, if someone's buying drinks for someone else and they're intoxicated, what's, you know, do you, can you, what can you do in that particular thing? Because you're not supposed to serve someone who's intoxicated. Right. So, How will they arrive at this protocol? Because even just with what you're saying now, you can see that being, a, you know, a complex issue. What some people see as one thing might be viewed as something else from someone else. How, how do you arrive at this protocol? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be, you know, so my my plug is going to be make sure that they're working with people who know this this issue inside and out, uh, helping to, I guess, give pointers around people having different scenarios, because you're right, there's a real wide spectrum, like what, what you know, what happens in a hotel context, you know, if, if someone who is uh, cleaning a room and they might be witnessing something will be very different than what might be happening at your local pub. So there's going to have to be differences in the way that it is rolled out depending on the industry. And, and I guess just uh, probably if I was someone working in that, in that field, I'd want to know, like, what do you do? What's yeah. useful? What's not useful? And also to keep safe. Like, you know, when it, how can I intervene? What, you know, what's a good way of intervening that won't make it worse? You know, those are really important things. And, you know, you bring up a valid point. If you're a server and you're witnessing this and you're feeling uneasy about it, you've got a, a spidey sense something's not right. Yeah. Do, you, do you direct your manager? Do you bring the police involved? Uh, do you get the police involved? Yeah, I mean, at what, I mean, at what point does the does the, the customer or the patron say, hey, mind your own business? Yeah, uh, you know, for sure. I think these are excellent points. You know, I think as, a, as, as an establishment, you have the right around, uh, you know, when you start serve people and, you know, and, and, and being able to ask people to leave the, your place, whether it's a hotel or a, or a restaurant or a bar. So definitely we know that that parameter exists. But yeah, like, and if they go to their supervisor, will the supervisor know what to do? So, you know, these are really important things that I, my, my sense is that they'll need to be, I guess, a sort of 2.0 training for supervisors and managers so that they can answer some of these questions for um, some of the, the people that work in this industry. Because, you know, a lot of the folks that are in this industry are younger, and I'm not saying that that means that they don't know things, but that they may have less experience, they may uh, feel a little bit anxious about intervening in some of these complex things. So we want to make sure that people have answers and have some skills. Now, is this training, uh, does this just pertain to protecting the customer? Does this just pertain to date rape, uh, drug type of stuff? Or does this involve uh, sexual harassment in other ways and other things that they view or even on the staff themselves. Yes, yeah, so my you, understanding is that it also includes the staff themselves. So, you know, uh, some of your listeners might have uh, been following some of the, the reports around uh you know, women who work in particular restaurants saying, you know, I'm tired being told that I have to wear a particular short skirt or yeah. kind of, you know, clothes that are quite tight or uh, uncomfortable or I have to wear high heels, uh, that this is all about what your rights are as a worker because we know in these contexts that sexual harassment happen quite frequently. And also how, you know, what are your rights as a worker that if you have patrons that are constantly sexually, sexually harassing you, your employer has responsibilities. In fact, under the law that they must create an environment that is free from this. So it, my excitement is also for the staff who work in these places that are often contract or, or underpaid or, you know, not feeling very precarious that they will be able to know that there are rights and that employers will will uh, remember that people are watching and aware of the fact that they have rights. Uh, the, the issue of, of what waiters or waitresses wear in in establishments has been the, has been the chatter for a long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, gee, go back to the days of Hooters when all oh, of that yeah. started. Uh, is this something you can regulate? Uh, you know, it's, will you wear this? No, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you find yourself unemployed and, and nobody really knows why. How, how do you prove this stuff? Yeah, well, you know what? Again, that's, that's the reality. Just, just similar to how we have all sorts of rules about, you know, a renting apartments. You can't discriminate. But that happens every single day in our community. Yeah. Because the people just don't say, oh, I'm not renting to you because of these reasons. So you're right. But I think there are some real egregious examples where organizations or restaurants, establishments might have policies that say you have to wear this. Well, you can't do that. Like, of course, you, you know, you can say people have to look tidy or whatever. But saying, you, you know, you have to wear makeup to work, for example, if you're a woman. Like, you know, I think that there is hopefully 
um, more of an understanding um, and and hopefully some legislation and some policy that will back that up. But you're right, it will still happen. Do you think that with this being a voluntary measure that it's it, it's it's a waste? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the young person that's going in to become a server, we all know it's great money. If you you know you hustle, you'll get you'll you'll be paid uh, paid well for your services. Uh, that being said, are they necessarily concerned about? these things until of course it's staring them in the face yeah so you know what i'm i'm kind of the glass half full uh kind of gal so i'm i'm hoping that this is a great start that we've even got it to this place yes i would love to see this mandatory i would love to see it integrated into smart serve so that you know it has to be reviewed but for me i i you know increasingly we're seeing um uh folks of all ages, but particularly young folks concerned about the issue of sexual violence because it touches so many of us and friends and family, etc., that that I think people are wanting to, this, the time is right. I think people are wanting to talk about this and wanting to say, what do we do? Like how, you know, if I'm, if I'm not part of the solution, I'm kind of part of the problem, so what do I do here? So for me, I think that this is a great start, but it's certainly not the end. And it would just make, make sense to put this into the whole SmartServe uh, program, would it not? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, because it's all related. Yes, yeah, and, and certainly SmartServe is covering all these, you know, some, some of these kinds of notions around your responsibilities and your rights when you're serving alcohol. So given that we we know so many of the the alcohol is, is used very often to facilitate sexual violence and harassment really it makes sense that it happens there and also because it's a it's a mandatory like it's a program that is mandated it's clear to me it just seems like a a good idea and then also make it available for other people in the industry who maybe aren't serving alcohol so yeah I'd, I'd love to see that happen but at this point it doesn't seem to be Do, are the are consumers more aware of these issues specifically in regard to not so much date rape uh, drugs and such but more so into the outfit or the uniform uh, issue uh, at the end of the day money talks I mean that's wherever people park their money that's that's usually the way it goes are people walking into these establishments and saying you know that's just it's it's this isn't 2016. Yeah, you know, I hope so. I I don't I don't think always because I think sometimes, you know, I think we go out and we think we're here for fun and we're maybe not necessarily paying attention to what the work environment is. I do, but I think I might be unusual. I, my hope is <laughs> you're biased. That, yeah, I might be a bit biased, and no, I'd like to think I'm informed. That so, very um, well put. I, I stand yeah. corrected, Lenore. Thank you, Scott. So uh, to me, I think. Um, you know, I would like your listeners to think about that when you're when you're when you're putting your money in places. What is that environment like? Is when you walk in, are there only certain kind of servers working there? Do they all look a certain way? Do they all have to have you know? Are they all um, you know a particular size or weight or look a certain way? And you just start to you know that's that's you know maybe that's not where I want to put my money. Or start saying things like say you know you know ask to speak to the manager and say I hope that you know you don't have a dress code I know people aren't necessarily going to do that but you know these are just all things that we have rights as as consumers about how we support businesses. Let me ask you this, Lenore: What do you say to the young server woman who uh, who says you know what uh, I've got I, I'm a I'm a good looking girl. Uh, I'm not showing anything off uh, any more than I would in any other scenario. Uh, when I dress like this, the customers like it. I make more money. I'm just, you know, I'm providing a living for myself. I will not judge her because as long as it's her choice. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my worry is, is this... I guess, what about, what about this though, Lenore? It's, you know, it's her choice whether to work there or not. I mean, I understand that what you're saying is that it's, it's not the employer dictating to her what she has to wear, but if there is a uniform and it's, it's something that is like that, uh, she has, she, what if she says, I have the choice that I don't want to work there, I I don't have to work there? Uh, Yeah, you know, but I guess for me the worry is do people really have choices about where they work given the increasingly hard Mm. to get job context that we're to get jobs context that we're living in so 
I don't know that, uh, and especially younger people, we know youth unemployment and, and young adult unemployment is super high. So I don't know. Like, And we often are seeing like university degrees, people are, are you know, serving, doing bartending. These are all folks that don't get jobs in other contexts who would maybe like them. So I'd, I, I always struggle with the real notion of how much choice a person has. For me, if you choose to wear, you know, dress a particular way, as long as it is, it is your choice and you're not going to lose your job over it and that you're not, you're not feeling pressure to look sexualized in order to work at this bar or restaurant, I'm fine with that. As soon as it, there's an implicit or explicit uh, notion of that, that's where I get really worried. Huh. What... Um... We remember the 1980s. Well, some of us do, and do. the launch of, of of the Hooters chain, and yeah. then it, it, you know, it, it was it was a novelty, and then it kind of wore off and ran its course, and, and now it seems that I don't want to mention any new establishments, but it's starting up again, or it seems it has been. Is this yeah. cyclical? Does it go, stay for a while and then die down? The yep. the pendulum swings back. It's certainly for those of us who've are old enough to sort of start to note some of these cycles. Yeah, I, I unfortunately would see that we there is a, a certain a cultural appetite, perhaps we can say, or an idea of a pendulum or what's considered new or maybe it's retro or, you know, about, you know, oh, well, this is back again, interesting and sassy and cool, and then it stops being that again. So for me, I, I really look forward to the time when, you know, we're using people's bodies to sell products ends and when we're you know saying that our our restaurant or our going out experiencing involves those kinds of things like i i hope that doesn't become a, a trend or you know i i, I guess it, i wish it was not on the table but it hmm. seems to be again what advice do you have for young servers out there that are getting into this field oh wow so i would just say you know you have rights uh and you, it's great if you can know them and learn and that, that a lot of information is available online about what your rights are and that if you are experiencing harassment in your workplace, uh, whether you're a woman or a man, that the, our service, the Sexual Assault Center in Hamilton, we provide support and we have a 24-hour support line that if you even want to ask questions like, is this normal? Are they allowed to do this? We're not experts necessarily on the, all the law in and out of the legal stuff, but we can really at least, you know, help you figure out who might be able to answer your question and help you brainstorm um, some possible solutions, particularly around sexual harassment in the workplace. So well, I just want folks to know that they're not alone and that you can, you know, definitely you do have rights. When does all this come into effect? When is all of this available? Is it now? Uh, it's not available now, so I think they're in the the funding was announced, and then it's mm-hmm. going to be developed. So my hunch is that it's you know we're going to there's going to be some lag time before we start to actually see the end product. Uh, so I don't think soon, but you know hopefully within the next six months would be my guess. A step in the right direction, either way. Uh, yes, I definitely think a step in the right direction, just not the end. Lenora Lucasic Foss has been with us, director of Sasha, the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton area and area. Lenora, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.